Welcome back to another edition of The Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, Asia, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm Misha Oslin, a Hoover Fellow, and I am joined by my co-host, Berkeley Professor of Law and Hoover Visiting Fellow, John Yu. John, say hello to everyone and introduce our great guest today. Hey, Misha, great to be back with you, and hi, everybody. And we've got a great guest today. Ken Juster. Ken just finished his term as ambassador to India, and we want to talk a lot more about India on the podcast. Sometimes we get a little too China-focused. Ken has had an amazing distinguished career in government before he was ambassador in the George W. Bush administration. He was undersecretary of commerce for industry and security. And in the George H.W. Bush administration, he was counselor at the State Department. I'm very jealous. That is a great job as a law professor to be counselor is one of the great plum jobs. Um, he was he grew up in Scarsdale uh, and went to Harvard College and Harvard Law School and got an MPP from Harvard. But it's all been downhill for him since high school, because in high school, as we're going to learn, he was a crackerjack basketball player, and I hope people go online and see the amazing retinue of shots Ken has at playing horse. We were told, actually, that uh, he appeared on ESPN, and Scottie Pippen refused to go head-to-head with Ken after he saw a video of all the shots Ken made, including no-look shots, through-the-leg shots, half-court shots. It was amazing, but actually even more important than that, Ken himself was a journalist in high school, and I believe interviewed two wayward rock stars who somehow ended up in Scarsdale, Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. So, Ken, welcome to the podcast. What a distinguished career you've had. But like I said, it's all been downhill since high school for you. Maybe since junior high school. Uh, (laughs) Thanks very much, John. It's a pleasure to be here with you and Misha, and I look forward to our discussion. And You've also had a distinguished career yourself, so uh, that's why I'm so Yeah, but you know what? I can't, I can't dunk the basketball or even hit from six feet out. <laughs> well, Ken, why don't we get started? Tell us how you came to be ambassador to India. Uh, it was just because you had a long interest in India. Um, it's because the administration badly needed to send one of our top diplomats to India. Just give us the backstory uh, before we talk about your, your views about India. Well, I think it was a bit of all of that. Uh, I have been involved in U.S.-India issues since I was under Secretary of Commerce in 2001 to 2005, when I was really part of the change or transformation of the U.S.-Indian relationship. Prior to that time, the U.S.-India relations had been somewhat cool uh, there, and it really began to change at the very end of the Clinton administration when President Clinton traveled to India. This was after the U.S. had imposed sanctions on India uh, after its nuclear weapons test. And then President Bush, 43, and Prime Minister Bosch, I thought it was important that the nations or the world's oldest and largest democracies have better relations. So I got involved as undersecretary when India wanted access to U.S. sensitive technology, and I oversaw that. Uh, I was involved in the private sector when I was an executive at a technology company named Salesforce.com, and we were opening tiny, up an tiny office. little company. <laughs> well, at that time it was. Yeah, it's I guess when you were there, it was tiny. They, uh, I look out my window and I see this gigantic tower, <laughs> you know, like the Eye of Sauron overlooking the whole city and its Salesforce tower. <laughs> exactly. It's grown a lot. And I was with an investment firm named Warburg Pincus, and we invested uh, around the world, including in India. 
And so when the new administration came in in 2017, I had not been involved in the campaign, but they were looking to bring people in to staff uh, up the administration. And uh, I had expressed an interest in the India position, but they had someone from in the campaign uh, designated. So I was asked to be at the White House and coordinate all of international economic policy. I did that for the first seven months. But when the India opportunity arose, uh, I, again, put my name in for that and uh, was fortunate to be selected and then spent three and a half years uh, in India overall. Super. So, Ken, let me let's uh, maybe get right to the headlines today, because we're all, I think, reeling from the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and the images we saw, I think, of a real setback tactically and strategically. Uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit, what do you think the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan means for India and the region? Well, it's going to have some very significant uh, impacts on both India and the region. You know, when the United States is describing and President Biden the withdrawal, he speaks in terms of the U.S. ending its uh, war there. But in fact, uh, there are significant impacts of what's occurring in Afghanistan on the rest of the region. And I think it's a mistake to assume that because we are getting out of Afghanistan, we can turn our attention away from that country and toward other areas because they're all interrelated. Uh, India uh, was supportive of our role in Afghanistan. They recognized that it could not go on forever, that we were expending substantial treasure and uh, blood on the situation. But they're very concerned now that leaving the vacuum and the way in which it was done uh, has really uh, created additional security risks for them because it creates further leverage for Pakistan with Afghanistan and China with Afghanistan. And those are two countries that India has a, a difficult relationship with China on its northern border, Pakistan on its western border. And there's a concern of increased potential terrorism activity that might occur, particularly in the area of Jammu and Kashmir in the northwest of India. Uh, but just a, a shifting of the overall balance in the region and a perception that the United States is uh, simply not going to be as committed or reliable a partner given uh, what's been perceived by their role in Afghanistan. So that will make it more challenging in India and in the Indo-Pacific region more broadly. To have the um, sort of maybe unanticipated uh, consequence of drawing the U.S. and India tighter together, uh, you know, now that, as you say, it becomes more destabilized, Russia and China, Pakistan, who not necessarily the most friendly countries to us, uh, you know, fill the vacuum. Maybe the United States and India even have a stronger common interest now. As you said, we've been growing tight, closer and closer ever since your work in the Bush years and in the Clinton years. And maybe this is, in a weird way, an opportunity to strengthen our ties with India beyond where they already are. Well, that's possible. And, you know, in life, a lot of things that are potential uh, risks are also potential opportunities. Certainly, the friction between India and China has pushed our two countries closer together. I think the concern with the Afghanistan issue is what does this mean in terms of the U.S. international commitment and reliability more broadly and how it's perceived? Hmm by China and countries in that region. Now, yeah, what do you I think do, about that? That was my next question, yeah. actually, for you. Yeah, well, what does I, this I, do for I, our credibility I, with India and China? Yeah. I think certainly 
you can see the Chinese are already seeking to capitalize on what's happened by pointing to this as an example for other countries in the region as to why the U.S. is not reliable and is it and is retreating. It is the opportunity, though, as you were saying, for the United States to say, "Okay, look, we need to reassert the importance of the U.S.-Indian relationship and the U.S. role in the Indo-Pacific. And therefore, we should look to do things that would further strengthen that relationship and further Uh, deepen our involvement in the region. So there is a perception that the Chinese are trying to press that the United States has pulled back and is unreliable. It's an opportunity for the United States to say we need to uh, challenge that perception and make clear in reality that we are deeply committed to this region and therefore will redouble our efforts and our energies to it. One of the practical concerns is the budget. And if we spend a huge amount of money on domestic priorities, which seems to be the administration's uh, perspective, then how much will really be left for uh, defense priorities, such as in the Indo-Pacific region? And while we may rhetorically talk about wanting to strengthen the relationship, we've got to back it up with actual expenditures, uh, budgetary uh, uh, commitments, and actions on the ground. Look, here's my last question before I know Misha wants to jump into. What could the Biden administration do that would be dramatic to really strengthen U.S.-India relations in this world now where China will take heart from what's happened? India, other countries might start to worry about our credibility. Uh, could some, For example, I was thinking, could the United States... And India set up a base in India, right? Something, you know, something really dramatic that would really underscore uh, this this relationship that you you're, you're talking about. Uh, again, I think we have to be a little careful because India itself probably would not be asking the United States to set yeah. up a base in <laughs> India. You know, India is not an ally of the United States. It's certainly not an adversary. It's a partner, and it believes in its own strategic autonomy, so it wants to work in partnership with the United States. And I'm not sure they're looking for something dramatic in the sense that it would be provocative relative to China, but simply a continued strengthening. We could do further exercises with other members of what's known as the Quad, India, China, uh, Australia, and Japan in the maritime area and do them not just in the Indian Ocean region, but more in the Pacific Ocean region. We could bring other countries into that. We could increase some of our interoperability of our military equipment, perhaps with some increased military sales. Uh, We could have further exchange, but we could do a variety of things to simply deepen and strengthen the defense relationship and build it out with other countries, not in a way that's designed to be provocative, but in a way that's meant to show strength and stability and the importance of the principles of a free and open Indo-Pacific region. And it's Misha. Um, I actually want to pick up on that that question of um, of, of what would be dramatic and, and what would be too dramatic. And but go back in, into history and then ask for your uh, your take on where India is today. During the Cold War, of course, India was a leader of the non-aligned movement and deep in the the DNA of Indian diplomacy and foreign and security policy making is is a a non-aligned status. It, it was to get too close to neither the United States nor back in the Cold War, the Soviet Union. Uh, and after the Cold War, not too 
to continue that, not to get too close to the U.S. or China uh, or or Russia. Um, but for the U.S. and for many in Washington, India has sort of been the white whale for a long time, right? If, if you're fearing the rise of China, then what do you really want to counter that with? You want to counter it with the other country in the world that has a billion people. And Japan, as close an ally as it is, isn't going to be ever at that level. So a lot of folks in the United States want to think of India as the answer to our Asia problems. But how non-aligned is India still in its core? Is it, is it still a country that is always going to walk carefully between other powers? Uh, it, have we turned the corner? Is this a new partnership, as you talk about, that's going to efface the the um, constraints and hesitations of the past? Well, that's an excellent question. You've really captured very well the challenges in the U.S.-India relationship. And India has a doctrine of strategic autonomy, which is sort of a successor to being non-aligned and does believe in having good and positive relations with a range of countries, including Russia, for example, which is not having a, a, a close positive relationship with the United States, and to being a balancer, in a sense, among those and to not subjugating its uh, foreign policy to that of any other country. And so the issue we're seeing now is, will the Indians perceive our leaving Afghanistan as a potential opportunity, as John was saying, to get tighter with India and be more uh, central to the Indo-Pacific? Or will they say, gee, the United States is not that reliable and we can't count on it, so we have to make sure that we keep cultivating our relationships with other countries and not get too close to the United States? Because we've seen if we put all of our eggs in that basket, they may decide to uh, not be as active in the region as we would ultimately like them to be. So that's really the delicate process that is unfolding. I think, uh, and I've said this previously, that China, well, no one wants to have a conflict with China, certainly not India, and I don't believe the Chinese want to have a conflict with anyone either. Their behavior in the last four or five years has been increasingly aggressive and expansionist and more than simply this is a potential aberration here or there, it's a pattern in the South China Sea, the East China Sea, the border with India, uh, with Bhutan, with other countries in the region. And so I think that ultimately India needs to get closer to a smaller trusted group of countries, even if that's not part of the overall strategic autonomy vision. It's got to do so in a way that maintains its independence and its ability to not feel that it's subordinate to another country in terms of its decision-making. But the Chinese, as we've seen now by amassing troops on the northern border and building an infrastructure, are not going away. And uh, India's got the challenge of having a very strong and difficult neighbor on its north that it doesn't want to overtly antagonize, but it also needs to be prepared to resist. And I think that means ratcheting up the U.S.-India relationship in a way that doesn't go too far to uh, make the Indians feel uncomfortable in terms of getting in a conflictual relationship with China, but also is sufficient to send a message of strength that the Chinese do not infringe further on the Indians. And what's happened in Afghanistan has simply added a layer of complexity to that. 
And that remains to be seen whether the Indians will view that as an opportunity or as a liability and whether the United States will step in further in the Indo-Pacific or whether they're pulling back further because they are focusing domestically. And that's those are the issues that really will play out over the next few years. I'd actually like to ask you about the the domestic uh, situation, the domestic political situation in, in a second. But before that, to, to pick up on your, your issue of partnerships, I'd, I'd like to ask you about some of those partnerships. I mean, interestingly, India has the same problem that China does and, and Japan does, which is that they're so much larger uh, than their neighbors, either in terms of population or territory or economy or, or even military, that they're actually not trusted by most of their neighbors. And India is not trusted by uh, by Bangladesh. It's not trusted by Sri Lanka. It's, it's worked at improving those relationships, but it's had a lot of problems with its neighbors. And yet it has also tried to reach out to other partners and in particular, and perhaps most notably Japan over the past decade or so. Um, If there is a, uh, a a limitation or a, 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 a limit, let's say to how far India, New Delhi is comfortable working with Washington. What about another partner like Tokyo? Um, is that, uh, is that something that the U S can take advantage of? Well, again, you have a few questions in there that I want to comment on. And again, very uh, perceptive uh, insights. Oftentimes and the United States has had this issue with Latin America, as you said, when there's a large country with smaller neighbors, the relationship has tensions built into it. And India has uh, positive elements in the relationships with its neighbors, but it also has negative perceptions in some of those countries as well. India is making a concerted effort through what they call an Act East policy to provide additional attention to these countries and, quite frankly, to try to resist the infiltration and influence that China has increasingly had with them. Part of the challenge India will have is that sometimes requires economic resources in their own Uh, Internal economic demands are quite high and are further affected by the impacts of COVID. Uh, India will certainly uh, continue to develop its relationship with Japan, which has also been much more active over the last several years, and with Australia, and not as alternatives to the United States, but as part of India's uh, sort of policy of making sure that it's reaching out to a variety of countries and not putting all of its eggs in any one basket. It's also in recent years reached out more to uh, some of the uh, countries in the Gulf, to Saudi Arabia, to the UAE. uh, And now it is making a new effort with the European countries. This is part of India's own view that it's a rising great power and uh, it wants to play a broader global role. But these are part of all the moving pieces that are occurring in the Indo-Pacific, which itself, in my opinion, is increasingly the center of gravity of international affairs because it's the place with the largest populations, the largest economies, the greatest amount of international trade, huge natural resources. Uh, And uh, I go back, though, to what I was saying earlier, is at the end of the day, the primary focus has got to be China. Uh, and that really has even overshadowed the Pakistani issues unless China and Pakistan were in effect to have a two-front conflictual situation with India. And the only relationship that really sends a message to strength, of strength to China, 
you could say Indo hyphen and fill in the blank, but it's only when you put United States that it delivers that type of message. So I believe the Indians will need to continue and want to continue strengthening the relationship with the United States, but not do it in a provocative way toward China and not do it in a way that all of its eggs are in that basket. So it will also continue to reach out to other countries. The United States and India are going to have to grapple with what happens if India continues to buy sophisticated military hardware from Russia and how will that affect its ability to use American sophisticated weaponry and uh, you know, those are issues that uh, are on the horizon, as is the overall issue of economic growth. At the end of the day, all of these theoretical relationships depend on strong economies to be able to modernize your military, to be able to provide assistance to other nations in the region. And coming out of COVID, that's a challenge. And it's a challenge for a country of India's size that has the degree of poverty it does. Uh, and that uh, as countries like India, like the United States, are looking inward in terms of some of its economic priorities, how will that be able to respond to some of the challenges that the Chinese are posing? Well, you actually anticipated the question I wanted to ask, which was about economics. Uh, and again, we've been talking a lot about security and, and the foreign policy. And, and when I mentioned India's white whale in security terms, it's also been that white whale for economics, meaning concern about over-reliance or over-dependence on China, uh, the, the country that immediately is is offered as the alternative or a pu- potential future alternative is India. Um, and especially in this past year of uh, the COVID pandemic, when we've talked about offshoring from China and diversifying supply chains, again, India has come up over and over. So, is that realistic? Can, can you give us a snapshot of where India's economy is and, and the reforms? Is it just a, a dream that, that one day India will play a role, maybe not equal to China, but certainly much greater than where it is, so that we're not all over-reliant on, on Beijing going forward? Well, if you go back you know, 30, uh, 40 years ago, the Indian and Chinese economies were pretty much at the same level. But since that time, there's been a huge differentiation. Uh, India's economy has steadily opened up since 1991 when it began a reform process. Uh, But there's still much more potential that remains untapped, in my opinion. Uh, And more recently, since about 2018, we've actually seen India's economy closing to a certain degree. The United States remains the number one trading partner for India in terms of goods and services, uh, and when I began as Undersecretary of Commerce, bilateral trade was about $18 billion. When I left, it was about $146 billion. But it should be much higher, given the size and potential of our two economies. Uh, and for India, this is a challenge. Uh, as you were mentioning, companies have become reluctant, in some cases, to further invest in China. And in some cases, are actually pulling out of China. It should be a natural for India to attract these companies, but a number have gone to other countries in the region, in Southeast Asia, whether it be Vietnam or Indonesia and the like. And this is because India has a notoriously difficult regulatory environment uh, uh, with not as much certainty around regulations as one would like. It's got difficult infrastructure and labor challenges. It's tried to reform some of that. It's trying to attract money for infrastructure. 
I would love to see greater openness uh, and even a, a free trade agreement with the United States, because I think that engenders growth. And I think that's the history of the region. Uh, and we've seen that in other areas, such as Southeast Asia, where openness is, has led to growth. But these, again, are challenges, and these are internal decisions for India. So there is economic potential. The economic relationship has grown, but it has not grown as far and as fast as I think it could overall. And, and I would just mention one of the India really has to decide you know, what it wants to do on trade. Uh, it pulled out of the negotiations after seven years of negotiating of a regional comprehensive economic partnership agreement that China and I think 14 or 15 other countries are involved in. Uh, and right now, India is not in any sort of uh, regional trade arrangement, nor, by the way, is the United States, because we pulled out of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And this will allow China to set the rules and the standards and really start to dominate the region economically. My own view, and I've put this out there, if you wanted to make a real strategic, dramatic impact on the region, and in a way that I think would be positive for both countries, would be for the United States and India to accede to the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which would then create a bigger regional association than the regional comprehensive economic partnership that's China in, would place them front and center in terms of determining the rules of the road going forward for that region. And I think actually would be beneficial for both countries economically. Now, trade is very controversial these days, and there are strong domestic political uh, forces against it. Uh, but I actually think as a strategic matter, not just purely a trade matter, but a strategic matter, as well as a trade matter, it would be a dramatic and uh, a very positive development. And it certainly would send a very strong signal to China. That's, a, that's actually a great answer to my earlier question. What could the U.S. do? What could Biden do right now that'd be dramatic and show that America's back? I mean, that's a great idea. Join the TPP. Um, let's close the, our, our interview because I know we're getting uh, short on time. What was it like to be ambassador? So one question I'd like to ask is, well, what did you think about uh, Modi? You know, what, what's your evaluation as a leader, as a man? How often did you meet with him? Um, how often did you get out and meet uh, regular Indian people? And what was your evaluation? What's uh, going on in the country just from the, you know, your personal perspective as our representative there? Well, let me step back and say that it's a great privilege to be a United States ambassador because you are the representative of your country in another country. It's a very special privilege to be the U.S. ambassador to India because of the the significance of the relationship because of the strong people-to-people -people ties we have between our two countries. There are now over 4 million Indian Americans in the United States. And because India, being a partner rather than ally or an adversary, has every issue open. Not, there aren't issues that are automatically this way or automatically that way. They're all open. And so we dealt with everything, defense, counterterrorism, nonproliferation, trade, investment, energy, the environment, space, oceans, agriculture, education. We do over a million visas a year because the travel uh, for education and work and other means. Uh, and so everything's there. And it's a huge country. It's the most fascinating country 
I think on the face of the earth, it's incredibly diverse. It's really many countries rolled up into one. So as ambassador, you have to figure out how do I deal with all that. I think it's very important to get outside of Delhi to travel around. We have U.S. companies. There are over a thousand or close to 2,000 U.S. companies in India. We've got to visit them. We have civil society works. We have health and, and educational activity. So I visited all over the country. You have to build up those local relationships. These are people that can be influential. It was important when we had to evacuate people during COVID that we could move them from around the country despite a lockdown because of the relationships we had with chief ministers and their uh, key people uh, in different states. Uh, we were able to keep businesses open that were essential to U.S. operations. So it's a fascinating opportunity. It's a tremendous uh, honor, and it's an enormous amount of uh, work, to, in my opinion, do it right and get out of Delhi, but also be cultivating the relationships in there. And obviously, the prime minister is uh, front and center and the, and the most important person, and he's a very strong and powerful prime minister with a lot of the really power and authority residing uh, with him, as opposed to being more uh, distributed throughout uh, the government and the country. Uh, and uh, Prime Minister Moi is a very impressive individual. He's very charismatic. I had a very, I, I feel, good and positive relationship uh, with him. Uh, I was one of the few, maybe the only, or one of the only one or two ambassadors who actually would have a one-on-one -on -one meeting with him, but as we all met whenever we'd have visitors at a high level. And again, in that country, you get a lot of uh, not just cabinet members, members, senators, uh, key business leaders, governors who come, uh, military leaders. Uh, and so, uh, you know, relationships and, uh, are made up of people. And uh, he had a very good relationship with uh, President Trump, and I believe he does with President Biden. I think that's very important, the relationship overall. Uh, he, at, he is a strong leader, and there have been uh, concerns expressed that he is uh, moving the country in more of a uh, Hindu majoritarian uh, state, uh, and there are activities. This would get well beyond the time we have to discuss yeah. it. That one could. Well, well we're going to have you back, Ken. Okay. We're going to have you back. And, we're going to have to do volume two. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, there are other concerns about the government yeah. getting more uh, involved in some of the other institutions uh, within the uh, democratic structure of, of the yeah. country. But it's a, it's a complicated uh, and uh, place, but I think one that's uh, of great importance uh, going forward on its own terms and as part of the U.S.-India relationship in the broader Indo-Pacific region. Great. So, Kim, we're going to bring things to a close. Uh, we are getting at the end of time. We don't want to bear it. We've been very grateful for your patience. So we'd like to close with a quick lightning round, if you're ready. <laughs> okay. First, favorite Indian dish. Oh, I liked a lot of them, but chicken tikka, maybe. Oh, come on. Everyone says that. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> Particularly well, in the United Kingdom. Okay. What can I <laughs> okay. Quite, uh, number two, best Indian restaurant in New York City. I love Indian Accent. It's a restaurant that is uh, in New Delhi. It's got a London uh, uh, outlet and, and New York. It's really terrific. Indian Accent. Best Indian restaurant on the West Coast. I don't know the best Indian restaurant on this coast, but that's what I, that's what I look to you and uh, Misha to tell me. Uh, 
Well, oh. I'm in Washington, D.C., so I want to ask best Indian restaurant in Washington, D.C. Uh, well, Rashika is very good. The Bombay uh, yeah. Club is very good. I, I don't want to be unfair to other ones that I haven't tried. I mean, these are the ones. <laughs> oh, that... this guy is such an ambassador. Listen no, no, to this Ken, guy. Ken, the, the more, <laughs> Ken, the more restaurants that you mentioned, the more advertising revenue okay, we're eventually going to get. So I name them all. That I like, oh, let right. me put it this way. I haven't yet been to a bad Indian restaurant. Not <laughs> this guy really is an ambassador. Listen to this guy. There He's a diplomat. He can't get it out of his bloodstream. <laughs> well, Ken, thank you so much uh, for joining us. And we'd really love to have you back because as you were, so we just barely scratched the surface, I think, a lot of these complicated issues. And uh, we really, I appreciate it. We couldn't think of a better person to get us started on our examination of uh, India on our podcast. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. Misha, thank you for being with us today. As always, we're, as a co-host, you can't help it. <laughs> I have no choice, but Ken does. So we're really grateful to Ken. And uh, we, we've started a new initiative at Hoover on India that's run by David Mulford, former one, one of, of my predecessors, predecessors as ambassador to India, who's a, who's a colleague of ours. And so it's really important for us to be able to get the insights that you that you bring, and uh, we're we're looking forward to doing a lot more with India at Hoover, but also on the Pacific Century. Well, thank you both. It's been a real pleasure to uh, speak with you, and I've also enjoyed my uh, association with Hoover. There are many friends that I have there, and many people knowledgeable. I know not only David Mulford, I know Abe Sofer is there, H.R. McMaster, Joe Felter, who I worked with in the government, uh, is mm-hmm. there, and I worked with David both in Bush 1 and Bush 2, even when he was Undersecretary of Treasury and I was at State, we worked on the Polish Stabilization Fund, the creation of the European Bank for Reconstruction Development and other matters. And one of the nice things uh, about being ambassador is there's been a tremendous number of excellent people that preceded me and you get to really have a good friendship with all of them. So thank you all. I've, I've enjoyed it greatly. Thank you. Well, for John Yu, I'm Misha Oslin. Thanks for listening to another episode of The Pacific Century. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.